Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. This morning we continue in our series of studies in Daniel chapter 8. And as we prepare our hearts to receive from God's Word today, I want to both encourage you and, in, and encourage you not just to be encouraged in the Lord, but to be prepared for the days ahead. I could get up here and encourage you and tell you that everything is going to be rainbows and unicorns, although in the world we live now, everything seems to at least be rainbows. But I could also say that you need to prepare for the eventuality of what will transpire in our world in the days to come. By that I mean, you can't read Scripture, Old or New Testament, prophecy, or even history in the Bible, without recognizing that there are these days referred to as the last days. And that things will become more challenging and more difficult as we get closer and closer to the Lord's return. But the Lord is coming again, amen? Amen. So the good news is the Lord is coming again. The bad news, if there is any bad news, is that we are heading toward darker days in our world, and I'm sure we're already realizing that, sensing that in our culture today. So as we study today, it's with the perspective that I want us to have that we're reading about things that God told us will happen in the future, and and they're not pleasant, many of them. But why are we being told this? I mean, you don't tell your kids, like, horror stories before they go to bed, right? You don't don't tell them a a scary story. You you try to comfort them when they go to sleep. I'm not going to comfort you today. I'm going to give you the truth. And the truth is we are heading for darker days. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and how you minister to our hearts each and every time we come together in and through your word. I ask this morning that your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that encouraged us and moved us in worship, will now open our hearts to your word and apply your word to our hearts and and encourage us to be the people that you've called us to be in this dark and wicked world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to see that Daniel had yet another vision. This vision is of a ram, a goat, and a little horn, a little power. Now, you'll remember last week we talked about a little horn or a little power uh, that was related to the Roman Empire. This morning we are not going to be talking about Babylon. We are not going to be talking about Rome. We're going to be focused in on two of the four empires that we've talked about so much in the book of Daniel. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But as we talk about this little power, it's important to recognize that the scripture teaches that there will be actually two antichrists, one which will be a Gentile antichrist, and the other will be perhaps a Jewish Gentile, a Jewish uh, antichrist, to work alongside the Gentile Antichrist, but definitely one that comes from the area of the Middle East. So we're going to develop this theme in God's Word as we study from the book of Daniel into Revelation. So I'm just again going to give you sort of a taste of some of those things. So those are the things we'll be talking about. With that, let's get into the vision this morning. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1, and I'm going to read 14 verses, and I want you to pay attention. I want you to try to hold on to the the pictures that are being painted for us in this vision that Daniel records, because we're going to go back over it and interpret it 
actually, the rest of this chapter does that for us. So let's start by reading in the first 14 verses Daniel's vision of the ram, the goat, and the little horn. In verse 1, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. And in my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long, when one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. And I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. And no animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And he came toward the two-horned ram, and I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. And I saw him attack the ram, furiously striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision of to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now that's a lot of information, and we're going to spend the rest of the time interpreting that or having that interpreted for us. But with that as our introduction, we're going to see that Daniel received this vision during the third year of Belshazzar's co-regency with his father, Nabonidus. We've been talking about this over time. This is about 547 BC. This is actually the third time that Daniel had received visions, though this time it doesn't seem to have been through a dream. This time he seems to have received a vision while he was not sleeping. This happened after the events recorded in chapter 4 and before the events recorded in chapters 5 and 6. And it's a vision that follows chapter 7, which happened during the same time, two years after he had received the visions that we studied last week recorded in chapter 7. I mentioned this last week. Daniel was about 70 to 80 years old and had been living in obscurity for some time, and he wouldn't return into a position of influence in Babylon until about eight years later. So this is during that time when Daniel is not as involved in the government of Babylon. Now, one of the things that I think is important to note is verses 1 through, not only from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through the rest of the book, chapter 12, verse 13, are written again in Hebrew. And the reason is that this vision really pertains to the Jews. 
It's about the Jews. You see the reference to the beautiful land, which is Israel. You see all of the directions, north, south, east, west. All of this converges around the area of Jerusalem or Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Unlike the other visions that we've studied that dealt more with the Gentile world, this now hones in on Israel as a people. Very important to recognize that. Now, he that is Daniel, had not written in Hebrew since he was a very young man, as far as we know. Uh, In fact, you have to go back to uh, chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. The rest of the book has been written in Aramaic, which is the language, the international language of the people of that Babylonian empire and the world at that time. He recorded the visions that he received in his latter years, which we're now getting into in chapter 8, strictly for his fellow Jews. So why do I say that? Because unlike some of the other studies, today we're going to look at everything through the lens of Israel as a people, through the lens of focusing on how the world events that are predicted will transpire and how they relate to impact and affect the people of Israel. So that's our focus. And that's why I say there are dark days ahead. There certainly are. Well, We already looked at the vision, and as a summary, the vision took place in the citadel of Susa in Elam. This is in East Babylonia at that time. At its zenith, at its height, the Babylonian Empire extended from India to the Persian Gulf. It was a large empire, but it it wasn't the largest empire that ever existed, but certainly a large empire. Daniel would have been familiar with this place, the citadel of Susa, and the Ulai Canal, which was in Elam. That's an area, really, of Persia today. Now, this is the citadel that in later years was familiar to men such as Nehemiah, uh, Queen Esther, and Mordecai. So, Nehemiah, Esther, and Mordecai, they were spending time in this, while they were alive, and their stories are recorded, their accounts, uh, they were actually in this area that he is seeing himself in during the vision. Now, Cyrus the Great, who was the Persian emperor, who came into power shortly after this, about eight years later, uh, he obtained his first great victories over Babylon in the provinces of Elam. So you have this empire coming from the east in the area of Elam, and this is exactly where Daniel sees himself as he receives this vision. As we've said, he described the vision of a ram, a goat, and a little horn. We've already read it. But he also, and we'll get to this at the end of our study today, he recounted a conversation that he overheard between two holy ones. And we'll look at that again as we get to the end of today's study. So there's a lot to talk about, a lot to see in this vision. But what I'd like to do now is continue in our study so that we can have this rather bizarre vision interpreted for us. And as I said last week, the visions that God reveals to his prophets are oftentimes extremely vivid. They're they're imaginative, they're creative, because we serve a creative God. And so the visions become a little interesting to read about. And you might be thinking, why would God speak through animals? But remember, he's describing kingdoms in the world. And I think it's fair to say that if you were going to describe some of the empires and the kingdoms of the world, an animal would be the appropriate description. It is clearly how empires... And powers behave like wild, ferocious, vicious things. And so with that as sort of an introduction, let's get into the interpretation. 
And I'd like to do this. I'd like to continue reading here. There's not as much reading now in the rest of our study. More thinking and explaining. Uh, So let's get into it. It, This is a very vast study. uh, And I'm going to do my best to, again, give you a survey. Because we're going to come back to these themes in the book of Daniel. And further expound upon them and expand upon them when we get to the book of Revelation. So let's look first at verses 15 through 19. Just those verses. We read, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai Canal calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. That is on my face. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. And while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So we know that we're not talking about things that would take place in Daniel's lifetime. They were things that would take place in the future, hundreds of years in the future. To be specific, we're we're jumping ahead to about 300 B.C., so we're at 547. Give you an idea, Daniel's not going to be alive when these things take place. They're being recorded, and why are they being recorded? So that we'll understand that God knows the future. Can I hear an amen? He knows the future of our nation. He knows the future of our culture. He knows the future of our church and our families. He knows our individual futures. Because God knows all things, he can be trusted to do his work in and through our hearts and our lives and in our world. So that's one of the bonuses of studying prophecy, that you become immediately aware of the fact that God is not only good, but that he's working his perfect will in and through our lives. Amen? But having said that, notice that Daniel was greatly affected by this vision. He received a vision, and he received a vision, as we see, in the presence of an angel, and we're told the name of the angel. We've probably met this angel in our Bible studies before, Gabriel. The first thing I want to mention, and this is so encouraging to me, because many times I study scripture and I'm confused. So to know that he had trouble understanding the meaning of this vision, though God had gifted him with spiritual knowledge and understanding, and he as we're told in chapter 1 in verse 17, could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, he had a hard time understanding because it dealt with the future. Little side note, when the Bible deals with things in the future, but they've already happened in our past, they're very easy to interpret. Hindsight is 2020 vision. So when we interpret prophecy that has already been fulfilled, like that Jesus would come, born of a virgin, die on a cross, right, for our sins, be raised to life three days later, ascend into heaven. That part is not that difficult to understand when it's predicted prophetically now. But if you were to look at those prophecies before Jesus came, you might be a little confused. And you'd be right to be confused. You'd need God's help to understand it. But now think about this. There are prophecies, many prophecies, that speak of what will take place in the future. Our future. It was their future. It's still future for us. That's when, like Daniel, you might find yourself in a place where you really have difficulty understanding how to interpret it. It's okay. 
Prophecy is given so that when these things happen, we'll know we can trust God. We'll know that the word of God is true. So if the things in Scripture are being predicted in our future and you can't understand them, welcome to the club. Daniel's in the club. If God doesn't explain to you what's going to happen, you're not going to be able to figure it out. And this is very important. This is vitally important for me to say. There are many people merchandising out there and selling books about prophecy and about the future. And quite frankly, I wouldn't buy a one of them. Because even if they're right, it's really just throwing a dart at a dartboard in a dark room. You're guessing. The best you can do is guess. Oh, but God revealed it to me. Yeah, that's been used quite a bit over the centuries. And many times people have been wrong. So when it comes to the future, things I can't tell you exactly how are going to be fulfilled, I will say that. I'll give you some of the information I have, but ultimately I really can only guess. But when it comes to the things that were predicted that have been fulfilled, being a student of history, I will make it abundantly clear what things have been fulfilled and what things have not. One last point, thematic prophecy is biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is thematic prophecy. That is, the Bible gives us themes, and those themes are repeated. We see that throughout the book of Daniel. Each and every chapter has a theme that will be repeated in the future. Things were fulfilled in the past. Things have been fulfilled since, but they will be fulfilled again. It's, it's not to say there's just one fulfillment of some of these things, as we'll see. Okay? So with that as our backdrop, let's understand that Daniel needed help too. And he's approached by someone who looked like a man, and a man's voice, a different man's voice, just a, a voice, comes from the Ulai Canal, and it calls this man Gabriel, which is interesting because Gabriel in Hebrew means man of God. Man of God. So perhaps it's not his name as much as it describes who he is, but this is the name that he's given. And the voice commanded Gabriel to tell Daniel the meaning of the vision. And I'm sure that we're all happy that Gabriel showed up to interpret this vision for Daniel. It makes it a lot easier. So, Daniel was terrified by the presence of this angel. You know, people talk about angels and they're like, oh, an angel appeared to me. And they talk about angels like they're those little cherubs in Raphael's paintings. Um, that, that's not an angel. That, that's, that's, that's art. And I like angels. Don't get me wrong. I like angelic art. We have a lot of that in our home. But that's not what we're talking about here. When Daniel saw Gabriel, he fell on his face before him. That's how affected he was. Now, he would appear to Daniel a second time just eight years later. We'll see that in chapter 9. But in the scriptures, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. He appeared to Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is going into Luke's gospel in chapter 1. He may have been, I suspect he was, the same angel that appeared to Joseph in Matthew's gospel. And he may have even been the same angel that appeared to the shepherds. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. We don't know that for sure. But Gabriel was very involved in announcing the birth of Christ. He was very involved in that. And here he's involved in presenting this vision to Daniel. So God does use his angels, his messengers. Now, he was also told, Daniel was told that Gabe, uh, by Gabriel that the vision concerned the time of the end. So, it's important to recognize that some of what we're going to see here has already been fulfilled. Hundreds of thousands of years ago. But some of it has not been fulfilled. 
And the complete fulfillment of this theme will not be fulfilled until the time of the end. Are we in the time of the end? That's a very good question if you're asking that right now. Well, we are in the times of the Gentiles. Ever since the temple was destroyed by Babylon, we entered a time period known as the time of the Gentiles. But are we in the time of the end, the time of wrath? Well, we are in the last days because uh, what did the prophet Joel predict and was repeated in the book of Acts by Peter? That in the last days, your sons and daughters, they will speak in tongues, right? Your, your old men will re, uh, have dreams. Your young men will receive visions. And that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So we are in the last days, but are we in the time of the end? The answer is no, we're not. But remember, some of these things have had their partial fulfillment in the past, and I'll point that out. But have they been completely fulfilled? No. When will they be completely fulfilled? In a time period we refer to, and we'll talk about next week, Daniel's 70th week. Seven years of human history that have been predicted but yet to be fulfilled, that deal with Israel in the Middle East, have a lot to do with God's wrath being poured out on the world, and Christ coming again for his church, and then Christ coming again for his people Israel, and Christ coming again to rule and reign on the earth. Those seven years we'll talk about next week. We'll also talk a lot about that when we study the book of Revelation, okay? But that's the the frame of reference, the glossary of terms that I can give you for now. Now, let's get into verse 20. Because we can fulfill this, uh, this can be fulfilled in our minds, in our hearts, because God has already fulfilled it in the past. In verse 20, in chapter 8, we read, The two-horned ram, if you're wondering about that, that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. And I love it when it's that simple. I don't even have to wonder. Is that fulfilled? Well, yeah, it is. And it has been, and it makes it easy for me to share the things that history teaches us. Daniel's told that the the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. We talked about them in chapter 2. We talked about them last week in chapter 7. These were two kingdoms that came together. Today, if you are Persian, you would say, I'm Iranian, Iranian. If you were Median today, you would say, I'm Kurdish. Those people groups still exist. But back then, they were aligned, and they had an empire called the kings of the Medes, and Persians, or Medo-Persian Empire. So he saw a ram with two long horns standing beside this canal he was familiar with. The ram was a symbol of the kingdom of Persia, or media Persia at that time. One thing that's interesting is that Persia is represented by the horn that was longer. Remember when we studied last week, there was a bear that represented Persia, or media Persia, and it was raised up on one side. The side that was raised up represented Persia. Because after the empire came into existence, media diminished in terms of their power, and Persia became the prominent power. So that's why the ram, who has two horns, has one horn that's longer than the other. So Persia is represented by the horn that was longer, media by the other. Media and Persia shared power at first. Persia later became the dominant power. Now, this is interesting because I'm going to point out that it would be eight more years before Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, but they did exist as an empire already. Just not anywhere near as powerful as Babylon, and really, they were subjugated for the most part. They were out there, but they did not control the empire yet. Well, Medo-Persia conquered, just like Daniel saw in his vision, they conquered toward the west. 
to the north and to the south. The directions on the compass are important because it reveals the location of the empires accurately. In fact, if this isn't a prophecy, then Daniel would have had to have written it afterward. And many people who don't like to believe God's word will suggest that's exactly what happened. But we know better. Amen? So no other kingdom could stand against Medo-Persia. None could rescue them from its power. This would happen within a few years. And Medo-Persia did as it pleased, became great until it was conquered by Greece around 300 BC. Now we know that, right? How could Daniel have even known about Greece at that time? He may have been familiar with the people groups, but an empire? Not at all. There were city-states that were beginning to emerge at this time, but there certainly wasn't a great empire coming from Greece. So 300 BC is a long way in the future, about 150 years, right? So, or actually, you got that wrong, 250 years. So we're looking at a long period of history ahead of, of Daniel's predictions that has yet to be fulfilled. So I point that out because we know what happened. So therefore, it's not hard for us to know if Greece conquered Medo-Persia in 300 BC under Alexander the Great, then we should expect that the prophecy predicts what already happened. Say amen if you're with me. Okay, right? All right. Pass to us, future to him. He saw, look at verses 21 through 22. And, and by the way, you can argue incorrectly, but you can argue that Daniel may have written uh, verse 20 uh, after it happened because he actually lived to see the empire called Medo-Persia. But he did not live to 300 BC, and the Bible was already translated into Greek at that time, or around that time. So to say that Daniel wrote it afterward is just an excuse for not wanting to believe the Word of God. All right? So don't listen to that. Uh, But let's look at 21 and 22. Now, in 21 and 22, we read, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Now there, that's interesting, because He's being told it's the king of Greece, but there's no Greek empire and wouldn't be for a long time. As I said, about 250 years, they knew about Greece and the people, but there was no empire. And yet we read the shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. Who was the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. I'm going to ask that question again because it will be on the test. Who is the first king of Greece? There you go. And the four horns, it says, that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Now, what did history record for us? That's not hard to understand, but how was it predicted? Now, I love to look at history when it was predicted by the Bible as we said, about 250 years before it happened. It encourages my faith. Plus, I love history. So you're going to learn a few things today, but you're also going to be encouraged in your faith. So he saw a goat with a prominent horn come from where? The west. Where is Greece? To the west. The prominent horn represented Alexander the Great, who was the founder of the Greek Empire. By the way, Alexander eventually united the many warring states of Greece under his leadership. The Greeks were motivated to unite following the brutal conquests of Medo-Persia. Perhaps you're familiar with the 300 Spartans. And perhaps you're familiar with the history of the Greeks and the Persians and how they fought many wars till ultimately the Greeks conquered them. 
Well, Greece swiftly crossed the ancient world without stopping in their conquest, the way that Goat is described as swiftly crossing the earth from the west. Greece attacked Medo-Persia from the west with great rage, shattering Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was powerless to stand against Greece the way the ram was powerless to stand against the goat. And Greece conquered Medo-Persia, and no other kingdom could rescue them from its power. They were a group of united kingdoms in Persia at that time, and not one power, not one ally, not one people group could stand against the man we refer to as Alexander the Great. He defeated the last Darius to become the ruler of the ancient world at 30 years old. Anyone here 30 years old? Imagine ruling the world at 30 years old. But he died prematurely in the city of Babylon after a life filled with debauchery and sin. He died. They say he actually died of depression. That is, he allowed his depression to get to him, and he kind of just lived to such excess that he drank himself to death. Now, I just want you to think about that for a minute. You're the ruler of the world, the greatest conqueror that ever lived, and that's how you meet your demise. See, having everything in this world will never bring happiness because he had everything in this world, and he essentially just killed himself slowly. Sad, right? Don't think those things can fill you. They cannot. Well, the four prominent horns, and we talked about this in chapter 7, when the leopard, which represented Greece, had four heads, four prominent horns grew up in Alexander's place. This represents his four generals. Greece was divided after Alexander's death into four lesser kingdoms ruled by them, and these four successors established themselves toward the four winds of heaven. This, I'm sharing not an interpretation. This is fact. This is history, okay? To the south, you had a man by the name of Ptolemy. We'll talk more about him. He is the king of the south in Daniel chapter 11. This is Egypt and northern Africa. To the east you had Seleucus, who is the king of the north in Daniel chapter 11. Again, we'll talk more about him. This represents Syria and Asia Minor, or what we refer to today as Turkey. To the north you had a man by the name of Lysimachus. He's not mentioned in scripture, but this was Thrace and eastern Europe, okay, the area north of Greece. And then to the west was a man by the name of Cassander. He's referred to, not by name, but as the king of Greece in Zechariah chapter 9, briefly in one verse. But this is Macedonia, or northern Greece, and all of Greece. So this happened, and it was predicted by Daniel. Actually, it was predicted to Daniel, and he shared it with us. And now we have the interpretation, but we also have history on our side. So Greece was represented... If you'll remember, in Daniel chapter 2, it was represented by the belly and thighs of bronze in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Just like Medo-Persia was represented by the statue's chest and arms of silver in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Do you see the theme? Say amen. It's a theme. It's repeated over and over again. Chapter 2 deals with these nations. Chapter 7 deals with these nations. Chapter 8 deals with these nations. It's because God is revealing the truth of history before it happens. Oh, uh, by the way, when Medo-Persia was represented by, uh, in chapter 7, it was represented uh, by a a beast that looked like a bear. And Greece was represented by a beast that looked like a leopard. You can read about that in last week's chapter, chapter 7. But the point is it's consistent. That's the point. 
And Greece was also represented, as we said, by a leopard. So these beasts, these pictures, they change because in this chapter it's no longer a bear and a leopard, it's a ram and a goat. But the, the, the theme is the same, the empires are the same, the vision or the symbols changes because it reveals different things. Okay? All right, so now let's continue. There's a lot of information today. I'll do my best to sum it up. Deep breath for me. Daniel's now told in just a few verses, there's this little horn. And it represents a stern-faced king and a master of intrigue. Now, I'm going to tell you, there is a fulfillment in the past. I'm going to go through that quickly. You can read about that more if you like. You can even go on Wikipedia. Most of that's accurate, I guess. But you can read about this stuff. I'll go through it quickly. But there's a future fulfillment, and that's where I really want to focus before we close our study. He saw a little horn. Let's, let's read it. We, it was revealed to us in cha- uh, chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. But in verses 23 through 25, we receive the interpretation. We read that in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, by the way, rebels would refer to not just the, the Gentile world, but mostly the, the, the Jews. A stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He uh, will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Let's just take that much for now. and That's a lot. This little horn, it comes up out of one of the horns of the goat. Did you see that? In the latter part of the reign, it says, uh, he will arise. But if you go back to verses 9 through 12, it says, out of one of them, that is out of one of the horns, the, the four horns that grew up after Alexander the Great, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. So you can reflect back on the reading we did to begin this study, and I admit I'm tempted to go back and read it again, but you can do that at home. I'll refer to it. I want you to be able to get some history here and hopefully some encouragement for the future. So the little horn, we know this because history teaches us, it represented a man by the name of Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. So this man is from the Seleucid dynasty of Syria and Asia Minor. This we know. Antiochus IV ruled in the latter part of the Greek Empire prior to the Roman conquest. The Jews had rebelled against their God in wickedness by embracing Greek culture called Hellenism. They embraced Hellenism or Greek culture and they rebelled against their own culture and serving God. They became worldly and were no longer living according to God's word. So, Antiochus Epiphanes was certainly as stern-faced as he was a master of intrigue or deception with Israel. History tells us he was responsible for terrible atrocities against the Jewish people. He was actually renamed Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a twist on his name because that in Greek means the madman. The madman. That's what the Jews referred to him as. He sacrificed a pig 
on the temple altar and put an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He did this to humble and desecrate the temple and the Jews. He referred to himself as Theos Epiphanes, which translates from Greek, God or Zeus, manifest. Manifest. So he saw himself as a visual representation of God himself. These themes are very important because they they will be repeated in the future. But for now, this is what happened, past tense. Antiochus rose out of the Seleucid dynasty, one of the four Grecian kingdoms we mentioned. He started small, just like the scripture said, but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. Israel is referred to as the beautiful land in the books of Psalms, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. No confusion. So the geographic directions are correct. The information about his rise to power is correct. Again, what do we say? 250 years before it happened. It's impressive. Antiochus grew in power until he reached the land of Israel. He became very strong, but not by his own power. He had the backing of of the other governments and peoples around him, and he caused astonishing devastation in Israel and succeeded in whatever he did against them. He destroyed the mighty men and the holy people of Israel, just like Daniel recorded for us. Now, the starry host of heaven is mentioned, and immediately we think of the angels, and we would be correct. That's a future interpretation. But in the past, the starry host of heaven represented the rulers of God's people, Israel. Well, Pastor Tim, why would you say that? Well, remember that the sons of Jacob, also called Israel, are represented in Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37 by stars. So it's a reference to Israel. These themes are repeated from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. It comes up again in Revelation. Earthly rulers are referred to as the powers of heaven above. And Isaiah does that in chapter 24, verse 21 as well. But when we refer to earthly powers as if they're heavenly or spiritual powers, there's a double interpretation. Yes, they are earthly powers, but they're also inspired, indeed even possessed, by spiritual powers. And that comes out loud and clear when we get to chapter 10 of Daniel. But again, you'll have to come back. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Antiochus, or Antiochus, overthrew some of the rulers of God's people. He even destroyed them. He caused deceit to prosper. He considered himself superior to all others. I mean, he called himself God himself. He destroyed the Jews, and he did this by deceiving them into a false sense of security. And then we have a reference to the Prince of Hosts, or the the prince of the host, or the prince of princes. And immediately we think of Jesus. And you'd be right in the future. But for now, the past theme interprets that as the high priest. For the prince of the host represented the high priest of God's people. He was the ruler of God's people. The high priest was responsible for the daily sacrifice for the sanctuary. And Antiochus took his stand against the high priest, or prince of princes. Well, how can you say that The high priest is the prince of princes. Well, wait a minute. Is Jesus our great high priest? I mean, is he the one that made sacrifice for us? So you see the themes are repeated. That's why I'm pointing out these themes. It's not exactly the same in the past as it will be in the future. But the theme is repeated. So Antiochus set himself up to be as great as the high priest. He took away the daily sacrifice from the high priest. He brought low the place of the sanctuary. And this is interesting, point of history. The temple, when Daniel is writing this and receiving this vision, the temple had not yet been rebuilt in Jerusalem. 
So another subtle prediction that the temple would be rebuilt. By the way, as I said last week, all of the prophecies that talk about the future in Israel during that time of the end talk about a temple that will be defiled, where there'll be an abomination of desolation. That would be impossible to fulfill today for the temple has not yet been rebuilt. Therefore, conclusion, will the temple be rebuilt before the last days? Or in the last days, yes. Before the time of the end, yes. Okay, that's not hard to predict. That's just logic. Well, the vision predicted the temple would be rebuilt before this vision was fulfilled. And the rulers of Israel and the daily sacrifice were, history tells us, given over to Antiochus. Why? Because of their rebellion. You see, it's important to note there have been times in history where God has allowed madmen to destroy the people of Israel. Not completely, but to nearly destroy them. This is one of them. We're all much more familiar with last century, with Adolf Hitler. But it's important to note that God allows those things when his people have turned their backs on him. Did all Jews turn their backs? No. Not all the American citizens in this country are voting, you know, to murder babies. But we understand that God judges a nation or group of people according to his will. So there have been times in history where there have been pogroms, there have been holocausts, there have been those things that have happened. People say, well, if a loving God loved his people, why would he allow this? The simple answer to that is he loves them so much, he allows horrible, terrible atrocities to happen, which are the consequences of their sin, not God's judgment. Are you with me? It's important to note that. Oh, Pastor Tim, are you saying that God allows his people to suffer according to his will? No, I don't say that. The Bible says that. Over and over again. There's a book called the Book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, that records the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and it reads like a holocaust, because that's exactly what it was. Okay, so it was because of their rebellion that Antiochus was allowed to desecrate the temple in judgment against Israel. And God used this wicked king to judge Israel for their many sins. While Antiochus prospered, as the scripture predicted, he prospered in everything he did, and the truth of God was thrown to the ground. And that can actually be literally interpreted as they destroyed the scriptures, many of them, the Torah, Torah, the, the scrolls, many of them were literally thrown to the ground and destroyed. Well, Antiochus was ultimately destroyed. Amen. And everyone who comes against God's people will ultimately be destroyed. So as dark as the days become, God is still on the throne. Amen. So he was ultimately destroyed. Now, you know that I have issues, right? With the bad guys getting it. Like, in other words, it's hard for me to be like, oh, I feel so bad for the guy. That's just not me. So I'll try not to be too excited about what happened Antiochus was ultimately destroyed by God's judgment. The Lord struck him with an incurable and invisible plague. He suffered a dreadful pain in his bowels. Doesn't sound pleasant. And bitter torments in his inner parts, Josephus tells us, the historian. He fell from his chariot and his limbs were much pained by a grievous bruising of the body. So not only did he have this inner pain, then he was all busted up from his fall. Worms swarmed out of his body while he lived in sorrow and in pain. Do I feel bad for him? No. 
his flesh fell off and the filthiness of his smell was intolerable to all others, even himself. He died a miserable death in a strange country among the mountains. I have no problem when the bad guys of history get it. And I'm okay if it happens again. Okay. That's the past. But look at the specificity. Look, look at the details that, that God revealed to Daniel about the future before they happened. This is a God you can trust. You can trust his word. Look what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. He was destroyed because God destroys those that destroy his people that he loves. All right, now, there is a future interpretation. I'm taking about five minutes to go through this if I can. This future interpretation is important to us because it has not yet happened. And because it has not yet happened, I can't give you the same level of detail that I just gave you as to how the theme was, re- would, would, was given in the past or fulfilled in the past, and it will be repeated in the future, but I can't give you as much detail. So this won't take as long. But here's what we do know. Antiochus Epiphanes is a prophetic type of one of two antichrists that will rise up during the last days. Daniel identifies him with the little horn that came up out of one of the horns of the goat. But he's talked about again in the book of Revelation. He will start small. Okay, so here's the parts we know. He will start small but grow in power to the south, to the east and toward Israel. He will grow in power until he reaches the angelic hosts of heaven. In that situation, we are really kind of looking at a spiritual interpretation. He will throw some of the angelic starry hosts down to earth and trample on them. So you see a real power emerging that will emerge in the future. He will set himself up to be as great as the Son of God, who is the true prince of the host. He will take away the daily sacrifice from God and bring low the place of the sanctuary. So he's going to desecrate the temple. The host of the saints and the daily sacrifice will be given over to him because of the Jews' rebellion. He will prosper in everything he does, and truth will be thrown to the ground. He will be a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. That power will be the power of the devil. He will cause astounding devastation in Israel and succeed in whatever he does against them. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people of Israel. He will cause deceit to prosper and consider himself superior to all others. He will destroy the Jews by deceiving them into a false sense of security. When they say, peace, peace, destruction comes suddenly, Jesus said. This is all consistent throughout biblical prophecy. He will take his stand against the Son of God, who is our high priest and the Prince of Princes. But he will ultimately be destroyed by God's judgment as well. This is the theme that we will further develop in our studies in the future. But for now, that's what Daniel tells us, and it is consistent. In fact, Daniel later identifies him as the ruler that will set up the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27, which we'll we'll study uh, in, in two weeks. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, in John's gospel, referred to a still future fulfillment of the prophecy of the abomination of desolation. So it was fulfilled in the past, but Jesus said it would be fulfilled would be fulfilled in the future. So this has yet to happen. Daniel later identifies him as a king who will exalt himself in Daniel chapter 11. Paul 
calls him a man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, John calls him the second beast and the false prophet in Revelation 13 and throughout the book of Revelation. So this is not a minor figure in biblical prophecy. This is a significant individual that we'll study more about and have studied about as time goes on. So like Antiochus or Antiochus, the false prophet will be destroyed by God himself. And if you're like me and you want to hear more about that, you can read about that in Revelation 19, verse 20. He gets it. I like it when the bad guys get it. So that's a lot. And darker days are ahead. But is God in control? Well, yeah, you bet he's in control. Look at verse 26 of chapter 8. In verse 26, the vision, in the, evenings, uh, the vision of the evenings and the mornings, remember that conversation that those holy ones had uh, recorded for us in verses 13 and 14 of this chapter? Well, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Now, this is interesting because it concerns the distant future. This is really interesting because, yes, it was Daniel's distant future, but it also was was his distant, distant future, and yet it's still our future. Well, let's just look at that briefly. Daniel was told that the vision of the 2,300 days that he was given was true. Now, the Holy One told him that it would take 2,300 days for the sanctuary to be reconsecrated. The daily sacrifice of the temple would cease, and the rebellion of Israel would cause its desolation. This happened in the past. We've already studied about it. The sanctuary would be surrendered to Antiochus, and the rulers of Israel would be destroyed. And that actually happened. In fact, the vision that he received would be completely fulfilled in 2,300 days, or six years, three months, and 18 days. Now, some people said it's half that because they divide it with mornings and evenings, but I think it's probably more accurately the six years, three months, and 18 days. Well, why do I say that? Well, this time period included the elimination of the daily sacrifice, the rebellion of Israel against God by embracing Hellenism, the surrender of control over Judaism and the desecration of the temple, the oppression of the faithful Jews by Antiochus, and the reconsecration of the sanctuary by faithful Jews. Has there ever been a time in history where we could say that there were these 2,300 days and that exact or those exact things happened and were fulfilled. Well, remember, he was told by Gabriel to seal up the vision in that it concerned the distant future. But brothers and sisters, this should encourage you, the vision was fulfilled in exactly 2,300 days. According to the historians, uh, Josephus, his writings in Antiquities, and the book of First and Second Maccabees, which is recorded for us, not scripture, but history, we know this, that a man by the name of Menelaus purchased the priesthood from Antiochus, beginning the rebellion in 172 BC. Notice he purchased it. And this, all of these uh, things that were fulfilled took place between 172 and 164 BC. That would be Daniel's distant future. That would be our distant past, but it has yet to be completely fulfilled. Finally, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in 166, uh, 167 BC, and a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus reconsecrated the sanctuary on the 25th of Kislev in 164 BC. This marked the beginning of the eight-day feast of dedication known as Hanukkah. Jesus actually celebrated this winter feast while he was in Jerusalem in John chapter 10. I doubt very much Jesus would have celebrated a bogus feast. These things happened. 
And they're celebrated even today. Now maybe some of you, like me, Gentiles, maybe now we know what Hanukkah is all about. Because that's exactly what it was about. And then we read in verse 27... I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days, and then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And of course it was. How could he imagine things that have yet to be fulfilled in his life? Now, we could say what we haven't seen is beyond understanding. We have a hint. But we can look back with the benefit of hindsight and history and say, oh, yeah, we get it. That's not hard. But looking forward, that's where you get yourself in trouble as a teacher. When you try to predict the future, which you can't do. You can only share the themes and know that as we see these things being fulfilled, you'll be like, yeah, now I understand. It's only afterward that you can truly understand. But Daniel was exhausted by the vision, the way many of you are exhausted by my teaching. And he was physically afflicted for several days. No worries, we're ending now. I'll ask Rachel to come up to close us with just a brief song. He was physically afflicted for several days by this vision and even its interpretation. He went about the king's business after he recovered. And I encourage you to be about the king's business. Seems that Daniel had some position in government at that time, not a high level, but a lower level position. In fact, we know from Daniel chapter 5 that Belshazzar's mother later told him all about Daniel, who had served his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He was disturbed by the vision and its interpretation. And they are disturbing themes. And he found it impossible to understand. Brothers and sisters, there are darker days ahead. But knowing that God knows each and every nanosecond of a second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade, of every century, gives me hope to know that God is in control. Theme of the book of Daniel, God is sovereign. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, your word. I pray that some of this would have stuck to us. That we'd come away from this study knowing that you're in control. And we've learned a few things about history and we've received some information about the future. But the most important truth is to know that you are in control, that you are sovereign over our lives in all things. Lord, we pray for your continued blessing during this week. In Jesus' name, amen.